Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is a professor of spiritual theology at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Denver, Colorado. A graduate of the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome, he specializes in the wisdom of the saints and the mystics of the Church. In this episode, we examine the works of St. Hildegard of Bingen, and in particular, her mystical visions and writings found in the volume entitled The Scivias. Pope Benedict XVI, who has declared St. Hildegard a doctor of the Church, has said that her mystical visions were rich in theological content. She was renowned for her spiritual guidance and was an authoritative voice in support of interior renewal. Beginning to pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you again, Chris. I am so excited talking about St. Hildegard of Bingen. Can I say there is not very much out there about a woman who is now being lifted up as a doctor of the church. It's very interesting. Part of the reason why there isn't a lot out there right now is because at the end of her life, even people were suspicious about her writing and some of the things. And so, so there was a threat of excommunication over her and that kind of a cloud that haunted those who studied her. More recently, in the last 40 years or so, the feminists discovered her, a lot of different feminist authors, and uh, and she became a figure noted in their literature because she's a very powerful woman, a foundress of a monastery. In fact, she entered the Benedictine life at the age eight. She was consecrated to God. And she'll spend her whole life as a Benedictine a nun, but she founds her own monastery in Bingen, And then at the age of 42, she has these visions, and God commands her to cry out to the world about what she sees. And so feminists kind of like her because it's a strong woman who's not afraid to engage the culture at a time when a lot of women were not learned and more silent. She's a very powerful figure. At the same time, though, I think sometimes They've used her in the literature. They've made an icon that's really not true to history. And sometimes they've distorted our view of her holiness. So there's work that needs to be done to reclaim St. Hildegard for the English-speaking world so that we can receive her teachings. So Pope Benedict is very strong about that. He has always appreciated her writings. He declared her a saint uh, last spring and this October. He's declaring her a doctor of the church because he believes her visions, this this message she was commanded to declare to the world, has something important to say to the church today. That's one of the reasons why we declare doctors of the church is somehow their teaching is very important for the universal church today. I hope that there will be great scholars who know the history of the time, understand the nature of Christian holiness, who will give Hildegard another look and help us see this remarkable 
person who was a great leader, powerful personality, not afraid to engage the forces and powers of her time, but also a very humble and obedient nun who loved Jesus. And that's one of the things I found coming out of her writing. She's a woman deeply in love with the Lord Jesus and wanted to spend her life serving him. That story about Hildegard still needs to be told. And hopefully it's something that, that we'll begin to see after she's declared a doctor of the church so that her message can enrich us today. I think it should be said that she was vetted quite thoroughly in her time with the incredible doctor of the church himself, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, as one who examined her work, as well as the pontiff of the time, uh, the pope of that period who uh, held her up as someone to be regarded and her work edifying for the life of the church. That's right. Although she's always had her critics, the saints and the popes have found something very perennial and beautiful in her writings. She and, and St. Bernard, in fact, had letters of exchange. And it's an interesting thing when you go over the lives of the saints, you discover that they don't always agree with each other. She wasn't as, as optimistic about the Crusades as St. Bernard was, and she tried to discourage the Crusades while St. Bernard was preaching them. You know, you can also find these kind of disagreements between, like, St. Augustine and St. Jerome. They, the letters they wrote to each other are not very edifying. St. Bernard and St. Hildegard, their letters they exchanged are actually quite, what we know about them, are quite edifying. It's obvious that there's a genuine mutual respect in them. And just before we dive into the, the visions, we also, it should be said for those who are unfamiliar with her, just tremendous composer. The first encounter I ever had with St. Hildegard was through her music. Yeah, the that was actually my first experience of her. Somebody sent me a CD where a group of musicians went into a monastery and reproduced her chants actually in the monastery, uh, in the chapel, to capture the echoes that would have been heard when these chants were first sung. It was very beautiful. That was one of the first things that began to spark my interest in St. Hildegard. First off, now this is my scholarly opinion for what it's worth, and, and I think that what I have to say will be superseded by people who are more studied in, in the Benedictine tradition than I have been. That being said, I want to talk to you about two visions today. Uh, the first one is the first vision in book one. It's entitled, God Enthroned Shows Himself to Hildegard. And I, I named this vision, The Iron Mountain. The second vision I'd like to talk about is the vision called The Redeemer. And that's vision one in book two. We won't be able to go over everything that goes on in these visions. They're quite busy, but I want to just pick out a couple themes. But before I do that, I just want to say a word about Benedictine spirituality, what I think are the basic building blocks of it. These basic building blocks live in the teachings of St. Hildegard. So the rule of St. Benedict then is very important for a study of St. Hildegard. If you're not familiar with the rule, you'll, meet, you'll miss some of the things that she's developing in her visions. 
she claims that to be a very simple woman, but she's actually an extremely studied theologian. She quotes the scriptures with great ease, so many other sources she seems to be extremely familiar with when she unpacks what she saw in her vision. So she's a great theologian and very prolific. She wrote all kinds of different writings in addition to the visions. So she says she's simple, but most saints say they're simple. She's actually a, a towering intellect. Her simplicity is the simplicity of charity that's in her heart. And in that simplicity of charity, she's a very devoted daughter of St. Benedict, living out of his rule. And so in the rule, probably a key paragraph in his rule is paragraph 58. Paragraph 58 is about the receiving of new monks into the monastery. What do you do to receive new monks? And there's some ideas that come up. Now, some of these ideas are elsewhere in the rule, but in this paragraph, he brings all these ideas together. The ideas are these. First, there is the search for God, querere deum. And then there is lexio divina, the study of the word. He talks about having the rule read to those coming in. They're listening to the word. And so lexio divina is the search for God, listening to the word. The next concept that you find in the writings of St. Hildegard that live in the writings of the rule is a Benedictine monks. The first vows that the early monks took weren't like today. It wasn't poverty, chastity, and obedience. The originally, the Benedictines, the vows they took were obedience, stability, and the third one uh, that goes with Lexi Divina and the search for God is conversatio morum, a conversion of your whole life. And actually, the word conversatio, you can almost say it's a conversation of your whole life with the gospel of Christ. It's a submitting of everything, all your judgments, all your habit patterns to the scrutiny, to be scrutinized in the light of the gospel. I think Ignatian practices surrounding the consciousness examined are rooted in this ancient Benedictine ideal, which was rooted in Lexio Divina, searching uh, the word for God. The mm -hmm. final concept that we find there that we also find in the writings here of St. Hildegard, what St. Benedict says a young novice should do before he takes his vows. So he's been listening to the word of God. He has been on a search for God. He's already showed signs of conversion, and now he's thinking about making a vow to live a life of conversion for the rest of his life. But before he does that, St. Benedict says, the monk should go live with himself. And the Latin used is abitare secum. He should dwell within himself. It speaks to interior peace. And the whole reason to answer the call to monastic life is that Christ leads us into deep peace, not only with ourselves, but with one another. And the monk needs to be someone who is able to live with himself, who is reconciled to God, repentant of sin, and has cleaned his conscience so that he can attend more deeply to the voice of God. This is definitely the disposition that we see St. Hildegard has even before she begins to, to have her visions. She's someone who attends to the voice of God because she's learned the peace that the discipline of the Christian life teaches. And it's with these ideas that I think her visions ferret these ideas out. And with that, I would like to uh, share the first vision with you. 
the Iron Mountain Hidden in Glory. I saw a great mountain, the color of iron, and enthroned on it one of such great glory that it blinded my sight. On each side of him there extended a soft shadow, like a wing of wondrous breadth and length. Before him, at the foot of the mountain, stood an image full of eyes on all sides, in which, because of those eyes, I could discern no human form. In front of this image stood another, a child, wearing a tunic of subdued color, but white shoes, upon whose head such glory descended from the one enthroned upon that mountain that I could not look at its face. But from the one who sat enthroned upon that mountain, many living sparks sprang forth, which flew very sweetly around the images. Also, I perceived in this mountain many little windows, in which appeared human heads, some subdued colors, and some white. And behold, he who was enthroned upon the mountain cried out in a strong, loud voice, saying, O human, who are fragile dust of the earth and ashes of ashes, cry out and speak of the origin of pure salvation until those people are instructed who, though they see the innermost contents of the scriptures, do not wish to tell them or preach them, because they are lukewarm and sluggish in serving God's justice. Unlock for them the enclosure of mysteries that they, timid as they are, conceal in a hidden and fruitless field. Burst forth into a fountain of abundance and overflow with mystical knowledge until they who now think you contemptible because of Eve's transgression are stirred up by the flood of your irrigation. For you have received your profound insight, not from humans, but from the lofty and tremendous judge on high, where this calmness will shine strongly with glorious light among the shining ones. Arise, therefore, cry out, and tell what is shown to you by the strong power of God's help, for he who rules every creature in might and kindness floods those who fear him and serve him in sweet love and humility with the glory of heavenly enlightenment and leads those who persevere in the way of justice to the joys of the eternal vision. God is speaking to her, a woman. In speaking to her, I think speaking to all of us, demanding that we who look upon the the justice of God, we who turn our gaze to God's justice, uh, speak out about that justice and not be silent. And I think today uh, in the world, there is too much silence about the justice of God. We've been too afraid to speak out. And I think this is one of the first reasons that Pope Benedict is asking us to uh, consider her teachings. We need the courage to speak the truth. When I was growing up, 
everybody used to tell me about St. Francis. And I think there's a truth in this that I, I don't disagree with, but I think it gets abused. And St. Francis is said is to have said, preach the, the gospel always and when you have to use words. And I think that's a very, very true statement. However, I think that sometimes those of us who who need to use words don't use words and use St. Francis's words to as an excuse not to speak out. We're afraid to say the truth. We're afraid to present the truth. We're afraid of being thought either crazy or, or we're afraid of being belittled. We're afraid of being marginalized. And as a result, the truth about God's justice isn't being proclaimed in the market square of ideas. It's not being made known in the public square. And without the truth of God's justice, people just float into nothingness. Without justice to anchor us together, we can't live together in a society. St. Hildegard writing in the Middle Ages, when society is held together by the skin of everybody's teeth, realizes that for our society, our culture, our civilization to advance, we need to root it in the justice of God. And that's what her vision is all about. Her vision is about God's justice, which is like iron. It can't be moved. It can't be changed. It stands firm forever. We don't change that justice to accommodate our lives. We change our lives to make space for that justice. This is her message in the, as she unpacks this vision, is our lives need to conform to divine justice. You might ask, how is it that we know God's justice? How can we know God's justice? Hildegard is saying this thing you call common sense, basically, or going any other way but by faith is to choose to not live with yourself fastened to the Iron Mountain. <laughs> and as <laughs> that, you'll be subject to all kinds of, of changes and shifts and instability. I mean, one of the Benedictines' uh, vows would be to stability of life. If you want to have a stability of life, it needs to be anchored on God's justice, which doesn't change. And so then somebody could say, well, that's well and good. But, you know, when I think about the faith, there's a lot of things we believe as Catholics that other people don't believe in and don't agree with. And so what are we supposed to do? Because it looks like the things we believe and what the rest of culture believe, uh, it looks like what we believe can be readily doubted by reasonable people. Now, what I would like to say on that is, and this is thematic in the visions of St. Hildegard, is I do not think that doubt and faith peacefully coexist in the mind. Someone mm -hmm. who believes they know the truth either is very, very mistaken and therefore needs to be proved wrong, or if they're right, they need to live that out. If they really believe they know the truth, they need to live it out all the way. Mm -hmm. And this is what St. Hildegard is calling us to in this vision. Live out the justice of God. And so in this sense, you find in the writings of St. Hildegard kind of a battle, a, a contest going on for the truth of the soul. Not just in this vision, this vision kind of sets the table for this, but other visions, you'll find the soul having to overcome the, an ocean of evil and clamor and all kinds of, uh, of things that seem to oppose its coming into the truth. 
And this vision, Hildegard says, to begin to win the battle, the, the battle that she'll do later, begin to win the battle, the first thing that you need to do is gaze on this iron mountain hidden in God's glory. You need to gaze on it with the fear of the Lord. If you are to see the glory of God, you need to gaze on the Lord with holy fear. Holy fear is a gift. It's not withdrawing from the Lord because you're afraid to do anything in his presence because you're afraid he's an angry God who might whack you. That's a later development, really a error in spiritual doctrine that, that the church constantly condemns. Jansenism believes something like that. Rather, the holy fear is the kind of fear that you take into any relationship where there is someone whom you really love and who demands your complete respect. That kind of demanding respect means then that you don't go into their presence with a lot of pride. There's a certain kind of holy fear that operates in healthy marriages where the husband and the wife in mutual respect and reverence for each other are careful in how they approach one another and when they disclose their hearts and what's bothering them. They carefully disclose those things. Well, just like that is true in the most intimate of human relationships, it's true in our relationship with God. God demands our absolute allegiance. And so holy fear in this vision that she has is this figure that is covered with eyes, eyes that look on God's mountain and see his justice for what it is. And when you see his justice for, for what it is, our humanity is so deformed, you can't hardly recognize our humanity when it's covered with fear of the Lord. Because when our humanity is brought back into fear of the Lord, we're moved to pretty radical conversion. We don't want to stay the same way we are. And so she's getting to another truth here that I think needs to be worked out that a lot of people in approaching their spiritual life, they kind of start with the assumption that I'm a pretty good guy and I have common sense and I can pretty much figure out, you know, what needs to be done so that I can be a good guy. Benedictine spirituality and in this vision that St. Hildegard is giving us, the, the message is, no, you're not a pretty good guy. God created you good and there's a goodness in you because of the, the way God created you. But you need to take some responsibility. You not only have betrayed that, but you continue to betray that constantly in innumerable ways. And once pierced to the heart by that truth, when you recognize that as human beings, we are not worthy to stand before the presence of the Lord, all of a sudden, instead of thinking we've kind of got the justice of God figured out and we can tweak it this way or that way to fit into our lives, we all of a sudden begin to realize that we need to do a major overhaul of our lives, every aspect of our lives, so that we can live under the shadow of God's justice. And then she talks mm -hmm. about those, those gentle kind of wings streaming from the Lord. When we live under the shadow of God's justice, divine providence takes care of us. So do you see all the things that are going on all at once? You have the unchangeable truth about divine justice against which we are measured. And you have the fear of the Lord that gazes and sees that truth for what it is and demands personal conversion. But for those who will and trust step out and embrace that personal conversion, they discover 
the joy, the peace of living under the providence of God. That's where her vision points us. Isn't that a beautiful vision? It's incredible. It has so much depth to it. It does. I think think today we need to rediscover some of that depth, and we need to rediscover the courage to speak out about it as we encounter it in our own lives. And I think because we've been timid about speaking out about it, there are other voices in in our culture constantly turning people away from that mountain and uh, constantly telling them that that they don't need to change, that you know, just go with your human nature the way it is. It's pretty good. It will all work out. And those voices that say that, they're not helping people discover peace. Today, profoundly lacks peace. It really is calling us to integrity. I mean, when you look at just from every angle, those eyes, I mean, it, it observes every part of who we are. If integrity, I've heard the definition at times that you are who you appear to be. Oh, that's And it's calling us to live holy integrity, that are you what you appear to be? You can't escape, you can't escape the gaze of God. You either are or you aren't. Yep. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about three, three levels of integrity. It's like a fleet of ships. First level of integrity is each ship in it needs to be integral. In other words, the ship needs to be able to float. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Otherwise, your fleet doesn't get anywhere. And so the first level of integrity is our integrity with ourselves. This speaks to kind of avatari sekum. Are we able to be at peace with ourselves? Are we able to float? Second level of integrity is, you know, a fleet doesn't work if the ships are running into each other. And so they they need to be able to sell in formation. They need to have right relations with each other. And that's that level of integrity is also very important. I need to be able to relate with all those around me. I need the art of getting along with those around me. Otherwise, I will destroy my own integrity and the integrity of others. And then the third level of integrity is the fleet needs to be able to get to where it needs to go. He says if if a a fleet is supposed to go to, I don't know what city, Hong Kong, but, you know, arrives in Honolulu, it's not a very successful voyage. I guess I'd rather be in Honolulu than Hong Kong, but uh, (laughs) who directs us to our final end and who helps us get along with each other and who restores the integrity that we have with ourselves? It's God and his justice, and he communicates his justice to us through his son. That kind of leads us to the second vision I wanted to talk to you about today, and that's the the vision from book two of her visions, and it's the first vision of book two, and it's called The Redeemer. I call this vision the vision of fire. And I... A person not glowing with the strength of strong lines or taught by their inspiration, but a tender and fragile rib imbued with a mystical breath, saw a blazing fire, incomprehensible, inextinguishable, holy living and holy life, with a flame in it the color of the sky, which burned ardently with a gentle breath and which was as inseparably within the blazing fire as the viscera are within a human being. And I saw that the flames spark and blazed up, and behold, the atmosphere suddenly rose up in a dark sphere of great magnitude, 
and the flame hovered over it and gave it one blow after another, which struck sparks from it until that atmosphere was perfected and so heaven and earth stood fully formed and resplendent. Then the same flame was in that fire and that burning extended to a little clod of mud which lay at the bottom of the atmosphere and warmed it so that it was made flesh and blood and blew upon it until it rose up a living human. When this was done, the blazing fire, by means that flame which burned ardently with a gentle breath, offered to the human a white flower, which hung in that flame as dew hangs on the grass. What she's talking about is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the creation of the human person and their spiritual awakening and that all of this was accomplished by this flame is the word of God, the word of the Father, the word spoken into the world accomplished all this thing, brought order into chaos and made mud men. It's beautiful. That creative power of the word is celebrated in the rest of the vision and its redeeming power celebrated in the rest of the vision. I wanted to draw attention to Jesus, the word of the Father, because this speaks to another part of Benedictine spirituality that we started our reflections with. Remember I said Benedictine spirituality is about a search for God, but a search carried out by means of Lexio Divina, a holy reading of of sacred doctrine, a listening to the teachings of the church. What characterizes the teachings of the church is that in the teachings of the church, we have the word of God given to us, entrusted to us in the words of men. This devotion to the word of God lives in Benedictine spirituality as a whole, but it lives especially in the spirituality of St. Hildegard. And so she says, this is a number three of the same vision. You see that that fire has a flame in it, the color of the sky, which burns ardently with a gentle breath, and which is inseparably within the blazing fire as the viscera are within a human being. Which is to say that before my creatures were made the infinite word was indivisibly in the Father, which in course of time was to become incarnate in the adore of charity, miraculously and without the stain or weight of sin, by the Holy Spirit's sweet freshness in the dawn of the blessed virginity. But after he assumed flesh, the word also remained inseparably in the Father, for As a person does not exist without the vital movements within his viscera, so the only word of the Father could in no way be separated from him. All the insides of the human being, you can't separate the human being from his body uh, or we die. And Jesus Uh can't be separated from the Father. That's the source of his life. So even when he became man, he was the living image of the Father. Whoever sees me sees the Father. Because why? Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. And that mutual penetration of persons revealed in Jesus 
speaks to, points to the communion that humanity is to have in God. Our humanity, in fact, is brought into the mystery of the Holy Trinity when the Word becomes flesh. It becomes part of a participation in the life of the Father and the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit when the Word becomes flesh. And that gets open to us. So when we study sacred doctrine, when we listen to the teachings of the church, we're not just accumulating a whole bunch of information that we kind of store up so that at the end of the day we know more stuff than the next guy. When we're Mm -hmm. listening to the teachings of the church, the doctors of the church present their teachings to us and we listen, we, uh, we read them, we study them, when we search them, what are we searching for? We're searching for the word of the Father who's expressed in those human words. And that's true in the teachings of the doctors of the church. It's also especially true in the teachings of holy scriptures, which present the word with inerrancy and inspired. So this is the last paragraph I'd like to comment on. And why is he called the word? Because, just as the word of command, uttered by an instructor among local and transitory human dust is understood by people who know and foresee the reason he gave it, so also the power of the Father is known among the creatures of the world, who perceive and understand in him the source of their creation. Through the word who is independent of place and imperishable in his inextinguishable eternal life, And as the power and honor of a human being are known by his official words, so the holiness and goodness of the Father shines through the supreme word. And what I love about this is touches on uh, what most needs to be rediscovered in the prayer and spirituality of our day. The prayer and spirituality of our day can sometimes get consumed with kind of esoteric navel-gazing and concerns about states of consciousness and psychological activity. That's not our tradition. What is our tradition? Our tradition is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus who comes to us through the preaching of the church. Jesus who lives in the teachings of the great saints and mystics like St. Hildegard. He comes to us always in new and beautiful ways, and hearts that will seek him, hearts that will engage Alexio Divina that is informed with a desire to find Jesus, they find him in the teachings of the church. That's why our church is so great in the mystery of our religion, so wonderful. It can change our lives because it gives us Jesus. And Jesus, the word of the Father, is the word of inextinguishable eternal life. In a world that's changing, preoccupied with death, concerned with so many other things, this is a word that we need. Anthony, she is so rich in her symbolism, even the commentaries. It really begs for Lexio, doesn't it? It's line by line by line, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. And and again, her vision is they're so descriptive and there's so much going on in them all at once. And then the, the second thing is in a, just on the level of imagination and image, it's busy. And then theologically, she begins to unpack these things and you see layers on layers and layers. So she's beautiful, beautiful gift to the church. And Pope Benedict has done uh, well in helping us rediscover her. 
I think what, what's holding us back today and what she attacks right off with the, the Iron Mountain is our own hubris and arrogance and presumption that we think we know what God's will is when we have it figured out. And she right away makes us bow down. She's presuming that we are like her on a search for the living God and that we, like her, are willing to engage in Alexia Divina. A devotion to the Word, and this lives in her writings, but it, those who read her writings, I think, will have this. A devotion to the Word that is not afraid of conversion of life. That's something, the second thing, I think, St. Hildegard is crying out to us today. Wow. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. What a great gift to be with you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. Most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.